Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament and occasionally New Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rosie Candethel. Tim and I are both PhD candidates in Hebrew Bible at Emory University, and our esteemed colleague, the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, has this week off. As Tim just hinted, we're wading into somewhat atypical waters for our Hebrew Bible podcast, and that's because during the Easter season, the Revised Common Lectionary replaces Old Testament readings with lessons from the Book of Acts. That's why the first reading for May 1st is Acts 9, verses 1 through 6, with the option of extending out through verse 20. But have no fear, dear listeners, because we have invited a guest scholar to help us explore the potential of this pivotal New Testament text. Indeed we have. Our guest this week is Dr. Susan Hyland, Associate Professor of New Testament at Emory University and the Candler School of Theology. Dr. Hyland is a specialist in the history of women in the early church and in New Testament literature. A couple of her recent books that you might be interested in are Women in the New Testament, and uh, A Modest Apostle, Thecla in the History of Women in the Early Church, both published by Oxford, and we'll link to those on our website. Susan is an award-winning teacher and also serves as the general editor for the Journal of Biblical Literature, the flagship journal in the field of biblical studies. She's also an elder in the PCUSA and has lots of experience on the church side of biblical engagement. It's a real treat to have her with us to help us with this intriguing text. So, Susan Hyland, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us, Susan. It is really great to have you on the podcast. Now, I know we're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul today, but I am really intrigued by your research into Thecla, who is associated with Paul in the early Christian tradition, but I would imagine that some of our listeners may have never even heard of the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Can you say a word about who she is remembered to have been and maybe what stands out to you about the Thecla tradition? Yeah, it is interesting that a lot of modern Christians don't know anything about St. Thecla. (laughs) And it's especially interesting because she was, I would say, the most famous female saint in the early church, at least until the rise of devotion to Mary in the fifth century. So Mm. her story, um, as we know it, comes from a text that's written in the second century, but she is said to be a disciple of Paul. And so she would have lived then in the first century alongside Paul. She comes to hear of his teachings, gets in a lot of trouble for wanting to follow him and um, is repeatedly, they, they try to throw her to the beasts or burn her at the stake and so forth. She's always saved by divine intervention. And then she comes to be herself a, a traveling apostle and, and preacher. So it's a great story. <laughs> and if I can just ask one more general question about your research, Susan, uh, as you've delved into the experiences of women in the New Testament era, what's something that you've learned that surprised you or might be surprising to uh, those of us who may just assume that women simply didn't have much of a place in the early patriarchal mm-hmm. church? Right. I think a lot of people are surprised to know the extent of women's legal and social uh, influence in the ancient world. Um, We think of women who really couldn't do much for themselves. um, And what we don't know is that women in the first century period owned property, used it uh, like other people did to invest and get more property, to get social influence, um, you know, impress people in their cities and so forth, and and to sponsor things like house churches or other kinds of um, religious and civic groups. 
So uh, women were active agents in ancient life in the first century, and really in a way that it wouldn't have been unusual to the New Testament writers, right? That was their world, and they would right, have known right. exactly what was going on. I think that'll be really helpful background, too, as we read Acts 9. So why don't we pivot to our text today, Acts 9, verses 1 through 6, and why don't we just throw in verses 7 through 20? Susan, could you read that for us? I will. I'm reading from the NRSV. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Thank you. Now, since we usually focus on the Hebrew Bible, uh, maybe it would be helpful to start with a quick snapshot of the context of this passage here. Uh, Acts as a whole book is regarded as a continuation or sequel to the Gospel of Luke, and it tells about the early spread of the Jesus community and their message into the Roman world. So Susan, do, do we know much about who may have written Acts or what sort of community it was meant for? Not really, Tim. Like all of the Gospels, they are originally written anonymously, and they come to be attributed to various people in the early Jesus movement. But there's no way to know who the actual author was. Like the other Gospels, Luke is probably written in the, say, 70s CE. 
and Acts is harder to say, maybe may have been written after that. Um, some scholars argue as late as the second century, although that seems to stretch it a bit, in my opinion. But in general, with these things, we know very little about how it came <laughs> into its current form. Mm-hmm. And as we um, move towards talking about the lectionary text, what can we say about how Acts 9 fits into the larger sweep of the story, the narrative that's going on in Acts? Yeah, that's an important thing to think about. So as as you can see from verse 1, the way it starts out, meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's the story that's been told before this, how uh, Saul is persecuting the Christians And it culminates in the stoning of Stephen uh, in Acts chapter 8. So the threat to Christians is prevalent in that early part Mm -hmm. of the story. Yeah, yeah, and maybe we can get into Saul as a character himself, like um, how he enters into this story. One of the things that kind of strikes me here is that we're still referring to this character as Saul. And then later on in in the narrative, we get to know him as Paul. I've always been curious about the sort of name change thing that happens with Saul and and if it's significant that as we read this pivotal moment in his story that he's characterized as Saul here. I think it's important to consider as people preach this text because it is some of the background that people know or think they know about Saul slash Paul when they come to the story. One of the stories that we tell about Saul is that this is a story of his conversion, right? He meets Jesus on the road, is converted, and as a result, changes his name. And and many people often suggest that the name change is directly related to this experience that is recorded in the beginning of chapter 9. And that seems to be untrue. I'm not sure where the idea comes from, but <laughs> there's no, nothing in the scripture that um, suggests that. Uh, in Acts 13, that's the first place that he's called Paul. So the story mm-hmm. goes on for some time before he's actually called Paul. And the way that it's phrased in um, chapter 13, uh, verse 9, is that it says Saul, who is also called Paul, dot, dot, dot. And then it just keeps calling him Paul after that point. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a name change as much as just an alternate. (laughs) Yeah, I think it makes most sense to think of Paul as a bicultural person, right? He grew up in Tarsus. He's Jewish, but he grows up in a very Greek city in Asia Minor. Uh, And he has two names, like a lot of bicultural people do. So when he's in Jerusalem, he's Saul to the Jewish people around him. When he's in Tarsus, he's probably Paul because everybody speaks Greek anyway. I wondered if I, we actually, so I'm going to pick up on um, what you said. We're sort of starting almost in the middle of the story. With Saul. We've already gotten some instru- in introduction into who he is. And as you said, it starts out, meanwhile, Saul's still breathing threats and murder. And then it goes on to, uh, the, he's got letters to arrest and bind men and women in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem. So as a former lawyer, I'm kind of looking at this and thinking, what in the world is going on? What is this describing? Is there a religious or political legal procedure for making arrests and extraditing people from Damascus to Jerusalem? Um, What is Saul's status in the Jewish community that he should be able to do this? Um, And I'm really curious about how we've described there's Roman rule but what are these prisons that um, that it, 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 the Jewish people would have been administering? I'm not even sure how that worked. Mm-hmm. Roman R- Roman law applied to Roman citizens, and Rome largely left the provinces to their own customs. So, if 
you couldn't do anything that was, you know, against the Romans, obviously. But for the most part, there were um, there still existed courts uh, in Jewish territories. There were Jewish courts. There were still Greek courts in a lot of places. And it was only a few people like Paul himself, at least as Acts tells it, uh, because he was a Roman citizen, that Paul eventually gets sent to Rome to appeal to the Roman emperor, right? Most people couldn't do that. They didn't have that avenue available to them. So it's entirely possible that there were prisons, for example, um, that were run by local groups of whatever sort based on the authority that they had somehow were given by the people around them. The extradition thing is really strange, though. We don't have any ancient texts that suggest that a non-Roman governmental agency had any power of extradition. So the other thing that struck me, too, is the fact that it's men and women that are being dragged off. And I, I wondered if you might say something about the, the kind of explicit inclusion of, of women in this dragging out. Yeah, the author of Acts is really clear in many instances that men and women are involved in the early Jesus movement. They are persecuted by Saul uh, early, even before this point, um, men and women. Um, and later on, when Paul is traveling and preaching, men and women respond to his message, sometimes favorably, sometimes not so favorably, uh, and start, you know, persecuting Paul in return. And in a number of cases, it's explicitly high-standing women uh, who are responding mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is interesting. Uh, but I think that the readers of Luke would not have found that strange or unusual, um, mm -hmm. like we do if we actually notice it, which we might not. But if we do, we might think, oh, that's weird. Look, there's women involved. Um, but for ancient readers, that would not have been a strange thing because they would have expected women to be involved in the religious and cultural lives and even political lives of their cities. I'm also intrigued, kind of camping on these first couple of verses here, about um, Damascus as the sort of geographical touch point for this story and how that's highlighted in the story. And so one of the things we want to try to weave through our conversation is a little bit of connection to the Hebrew Bible, since this is the first reading podcast, and see if there's, you know, some resonances that we can pick up in the text, or in lieu of that, at least some ways to put this in conversation with Hebrew Bible texts. And uh, this was one of the places where it kind of hit me uh, you know, thinking about the significance of Damascus as a geographic site in the traditions of the Hebrew Bible, I kept coming back to Elijah and, and that sort of moment in Israelite history of uh, Ahab and Jezebel and the persecution of the prophets of uh, Adonai and the way that Elijah sort of emerges as a a leader, uh, a prophetic leader figure in that context. And Damascus ends up being a part of the Elijah story when he uh, is, you know, in that in that cave on the mountain and after all of the uh, fireworks and whatnot, hears the small voice of God. It's a direction to go to Damascus in order to anoint uh, Hazael, king of Aram. And in those instructions is also the instruction to anoint Elisha as his uh, successor. For, for either of you, do my musings about, about that have any sort of connection to you for, for this story? I actually just, when Susan was reading it, I was struck by the Elijah connection by verse 19. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Like, mm. So it reminded me of the angel's instruction to eat bread 
um, in order to continue his journey. So I, I don't. So I'm, I'm wondering, actually, Susan, if you have some thoughts too on that. Whether this, this is a deliberate um, kind of allusion back to some of the prophetic um, traditions of the Hebrew Bible. Well, it makes me think about other Elijah allusions in the Luke Acts story too, which are many actually, um, both Elijah and Elisha. Uh, and sometimes perhaps they're sort of elided a little bit, but, um, in a lot, in a lot of ways, Jesus himself is presented as a prophet like Elijah, the people around him recognize him as a prophet. Mm -hmm. And one of the times they do that is after the raising of the widow son, um, the widow at Cain, right? That story similar in many ways to, Elijah's actions with the widow and her son. And, and the people respond by saying, look, a great prophet has risen amongst us, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they see what's happening and they're like, oh, I remember. <laughs> this is about Elijah, right? Um, and then one of the most striking connections to me is that Luke is the actually the only author who tells us the story of the ascension. Uh, we, I think as Christians, we forget that because we assume it's part of the story, but none of the other gospels actually sort of record or narrate the event of the ascension. Um, and Luke does it twice, one at, once at the end of Luke and once at the beginning of Acts, right? So it's the hinge between mm -hmm. the two stories. And this is also, of course, one of the most important Elijah stories, right? Is right, the passing right. of the mantle from Elijah mm -hmm. to Elisha. Um, and part of the way that story goes is Elisha requests, give me a double portion of your spirit to Elijah. And Elisha, Elijah says, well, if you see me going up into heaven, then you'll be granted a double portion of my spirit, right? And so, and this is what ha happens, of course, and Elisha sees the whole thing happen. Um, and and this, that parallel is also present in Acts, right? It's not just that the disciples are there, but that they see Jesus going up into heaven. Um, mm -hmm. And then what happens in Acts is that Jesus' spirit, it's what is flowing through the disciples as they heal people, teach, do the same kinds of things that Jesus did in his life and ministry. So all of that makes me wonder if Elijah connections with Paul aren't also running on that same theme, right? That Jesus slash Elijah's spirit now is coming up in the story in different ways. I think that makes sense, and uh, especially in connection to the Ascension. I'm glad you brought—I hadn't really thought about it that way, but um, Paul himself in, in the letters— uh, refers to his experience, his encounter with Jesus here as a kind of, um, you know, out of time <laughs> experience of the ascension, right? That, that he was one of the witnesses of the risen Christ. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering whether in light of the prophetic traditions, um, if we could say, maybe make some comments about how Saul's experience seems to maybe draw something from that tradition, but also vary from it in some important ways. There's a, a double calling of Saul's name in verse four. So the Saul, Saul, which is reminiscent of Moses in Exodus 3 or Samuel, so um, in 1 Samuel 3. And maybe I can tag on to the question. I mean, you referenced earlier, Susan, that this is often read as a conversion story or interpreted as a conversion story. And I wonder if, if reading it as a call story has a kind of different resonance to it. And I wonder kind of what you think about the genre of this, this chapter. I think a call story makes a lot of sense. I do hear the, the resonance in that phrase, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Just that um, calling of Saul's name. I think it's a mistake to read the story as a conversion story, largely because it suggests that Paul, number one, was leaving Judaism 
right, and converting to Christianity. And both of those things are wrong, I think. Paul is always Jewish throughout all of the stories and letters that we have about him um, and everything that he does. Uh, and I think he's always still identified as a Jewish person. Um, and Christianity isn't really something that exists yet exactly on its own as a separate religion from Judaism. Mm -hmm. Paul and others around him seem to identify Christ believers as part of Judaism. So I think it would be a good thing to eliminate that <laughs> that discussion <laughs> of conversion um, as we yeah. think about this story and preach about it. But um, call actually sounds more like what I see happening in the story because Saul responds in a very pious and faithful way. He says, who are you, Lord? Right, and that word Lord, kurios, um, is cer certainly the word that he will come to use of Jesus. But at this point, he's not really sure who it is, but he knows that it, it you know, that it, this is some sort of a divine vision or intervention, right? He He's not mm -hmm. at all fooled into thinking that there's a human being talking to him on the road, right? He, right. Um, he is rightly perceiving what's going on here. And then um, in response to it, um, he doesn't eat or drink for three days, which is, again, a very, um, you can tell me from the Old Testament, right? This is a, a traditional <laughs> sort of period um, that brings to mind penitence um, and petitioning God. So he seems to understand this as a, as a divine calling. It's kind of striking to me how in this, uh, Jesus is interacting directly with Saul. And I don't know why, but I've always sort of had this impression that after the story of the Ascension, Jesus himself is just sort of out of the picture. And it always surprises me again when I read this. And here's Jesus, the risen Jesus, like having this direct interaction with Saul. And then again with Ananias in, as the story continues. Um, am I right that that's a bit unusual as Acts unfolds, and, and what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. It, it is unusual in that we don't really see Jesus as, as strongly as this, I guess, in the other parts of the narrative, but you do see in Acts often Jesus' name is mentioned, and it has an effect in the story, like the disciples mm. will heal in Jesus' name. And even the spirit of Jesus is a phrase from Acts. So mm -hmm. there is a sense in which Jesus' own spirit permeates acts and it's what enables the disciples to do the acts they do. Here we see a stronger version of that, though, for sure. Jesus really intervenes into the story. Rosie, do you want to ask a question about the the theme of blindness in this? Because I think that's worth bringing into our conversation. Yeah, we kind of need to address this. So um, we both have given some thought on the problematic nature of blindness in the Hebrew Bible, and I see it here also. What are some pitfalls for preachers who want to talk about quote-unquote blindness in this pericope? And what are some maybe possibilities for preachers who do want to approach it through that? Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too, Rosie. I mean, certainly as preachers, we don't want to talk about blindness as if it's like some terrible thing that is unimaginably bad, right? Uh, and, and not to recognize the rich lives that blind people around us are living all the time. And yet these stories come up regularly in the Old <laughs> Testament and the New Testament, right? Um, and mm -hmm. this isn't the only one in Acts, right? There are um, at least two other stories, I think, um, where someone becomes blind or is blind and is healed. 
So yeah, thinking about how to talk about those texts is important to us. Yeah, and from the angle of uh, preaching this, one of the things that's been helpful to me is sometimes it can be good just to to name the problematic nature of blindness metaphors, and it's right here on the page, you know, so it's it can be worth saying, this is here. If I'm going to draw that, that metaphor into some sort of meaningful explanation in a sermon, I would probably shift it to talk about perception in general, like what Paul was able to perceive here or not perceive, and not tie it directly to sight or lack of sight as a metaphor for ignorance versus understanding or revelation or anything like that. That's been my sort of go-to as a preacher on that. It's maybe one strategy for uh, working through that. One of the things in the text I think is helpful to speak to that is in verse 12, where the Lord is talking to Ananias and sending him to Paul, but it says, he, Paul, has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. So here we have at a moment when Paul can't see that it says he has seen in a vision. And these are the Mm -hmm. same seeing and vision words that we would use for physical sight as well. So Paul is still seeing Mm. in some way, in in an important way, right? He's um, in, in the most important way, perhaps, even during his blindness. Yeah, well, we started to talk a little bit about um, the, the Ananias part of the story, and maybe we could riff there for a little bit. What, what is it that Jesus says Saul is going to do and be, and how does it play out in this text? Well, we get in verse 15, um, the Lord saying to Ananias that Saul is an instrument, uh, a chosen mm. instrument, And the purpose is to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. Um, So I think that instrument language is useful uh, for us to think about what's happening. And also um, to bring my name, and that's the Lord Jesus, right? To bring my name before these groups of people. And then listing Gentiles first, right? Um, as, As the primary target audience that Paul will speak to. Mm-hmm. I'm struck by your slow reading of that too, by the classes that are identified there, Gentiles and kings and before people of Israel. And I'm just curious about that phrasing. I'm like, huh, what's going on there? <laughs> Aren't some of these kings also Gentiles? I, I'm wondering what's going on. Yeah, that's a good point. And just why give them a separate category at all? But I do think that that's sort of where Acts heads, right? The flow of the narrative is towards the end where Paul is imprisoned for many chapters there at the end of Acts. Um, And he uh, does have multiple audiences with the local rulers um, in Judea Mm -hmm. and then eventually getting sent to Rome with the idea that he would appeal to the emperor and Paul's own desire is to tell the emperor about what he knows about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is perhaps another place where Hebrew Bible resonances can be perceived. That phrase, nations and kings, actually just like it, it tickles all my little spidey senses for Hebrew Bible texts, where that pair of words comes up quite a bit on the on the Hebrew side of things rather than Greek. But it's the same pair of terms, nations and kings, that come up in, uh, especially in the prophets. It's in Jeremiah's prophetic call that he's going to be sent to nations and to kings. 
And uh, it also comes up in, uh, I, I found it in Isaiah 60, among other places in Isaiah, talking about the, the eschatological purpose of, of Israel as a people. Their worship of the Lord would draw in nations and kings into, into the light of Adonai. I would imagine that a, a, perhaps a Jewish audience reading this text would, would hear that pair of terms as something that's, again, sort of resonant of the prophetic tradition. And maybe even also the language about Saul being an instrument, a chosen instrument of God's work, also comes up, especially in Isaiah, in talking about uh, the metaphor of God as a, a potter and the people as a, a clay vessel, um, which is a similar term. I, I was just flipping back in my Bible to, to look at the words of Jesus in uh, Acts 1.8, and that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That kind of cadence seems to be then kind of reflected back in this prophetic utterance over, over Paul's life. So I'm wondering if there's maybe some extension there of Jesus's words or uh, this, this will be one of those particular witnesses. Well, um, maybe this is a good point to sort of angle into some concluding thoughts, either about, um, you know, we've talked about the problematic uh, nature of blindness metaphors, maybe if there are any other kind of preaching pitfalls that we might want to bring out here and then sort of move into um, sort of from a positive perspective, what sorts of angles we might consider uh, suggesting to preachers who want to use Acts 9 as a sermon text. I think, Susan, you did a, um, a really great job of um, underscoring maybe the language of call versus conversion, that that might be a more generative way of looking at this passage, um, actually more correctly uh, for what might be happening here rather than a, um, a shift from one tradition to another, but rather a, res a further response uh, to a tradition that, that Paul was already um, very much situated in and never left. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's helpful as often as preachers can to emphasize the Jewishness of both Jesus and of the Apostle Paul. How about any thoughts on how you might get into this as a sermon? One thing that strikes me about it is just the important role that this story has in the story of Paul as it's unfolding here in Acts. I mean, here's somebody who has been persecuting the church and somehow ends up being an apostle of the Lord and who has this very in our and you know in our own um theology and in our canon he has this very central role in shaping what comes to be known as Christianity how does that happen right like it's just a total disconnect between the person who was before and the Paul that we come to know in the scriptures and the i think in some ways Luke is wrestling with that question too how does that come to be and this story is an important role and uh, in, in helping us understand what's going on. The mm. fact that it's retold twice in Acts, Paul narrates the same story twice in his own words later on. And it's different each time, which is a little strange and people have a hard time dealing with that. But it, in a narrative sense, it is that kind of like, let's think about that again. You know, let, yeah. <laughs> let's tell that story one more time. Because what was it that happened there? How did that, how does that make sense? You're making me think that one of the possibilities in this text as well is restoring the surprise to this text. Because as you, as you say, Acts was probably written with readers that were already aware of Paul's legacy uh, and contribution. But the text invites the surprise if we slow it down and kind of read this text carefully. It really should strike us as this is a very unlikely 
character to have the role that acts pulls them into and so there's you know maybe a larger thought there about possibilities who knows where life takes us you know who knows what what god does that it's restoring the surprise of who god chooses makes no sense whatsoever to us Mm -hmm. yeah that's so helpful And, and i would just add in one of the things that struck me from our conversation is the direct encounter here with with the risen jesus and how important that is for both sort of little mini episodes of this story and within the greater legacy of of the Apostle Paul. I often hear preachers say things like, God has no hands but ours, no feet but ours. We are the hands and feet of Christ in the world. And while I appreciate the truth of that, there's a emphasis in this story that Jesus himself is kind of directing what's happening and how the message of this movement is spreading out into the world. And Jesus is doing his own recruiting here, like <laughs> drawing in a new apostle to to have this important leadership role. And it makes me think that there's some room to preach a sermon that brings out that aspect, that whatever we do in the world on behalf of the mission of Jesus, we're doing in partnership with the risen Jesus and not on behalf of a Jesus who showed up for a little bit and then is just gone forever. At least the witness of this text is that Jesus continues to be involved in the pressing out of the good news. I like that. I think what Rosie said earlier, too, made me think um, about the unlikeliness of Paul, Uh, made me think about the way that the story of Jesus is told. I think even in these early speeches of Acts, as like, God didn't always choose the most likely candidate, right? And it brings to mind mm-hmm. all of those Old Testament stories, Jacob and Esau and others. It was the unlikely or unwanted one that was chosen. And and in that case, in the speeches, framing Jesus as that one who who is chosen by God, who is unlikely, ridiculed, derided, and crucified. But then to think of Paul in a way, in that sense, in, in the story too, as a sort of parallel, like who's the least likely person to become an apostle of Jesus. I think that's really helpful. And that would also be a great point in a sermon, especially for (laughs) folks who underestimate their own potential, perhaps, as somebody who could partner up in the mission of God in the world. But that (laughs) seems to be the way God does things, right? (laughs) Often choosing the least likely, the least well-equipped, perhaps. Yeah, it should bring a lot of hope. (laughs) I think that's really helpful. Well, I think a a hopeful spot is probably a great place to leave off for this week. Uh, This has been such a a great conversation. Thank you so much, Susan, for your insights into this text and into the cultural and historical background that informs this text. It's been so great to have you as our guest on the podcast this week. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Susan. Friends, you can find more information about our guests and hosts, as well as back episodes of the podcast on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. While you're there, check out our snazzy merch or make a donation to support the podcast with our very friendly donate button. Our gratitude also goes out to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University, the home institution of our co-host, the Reverend Rachel Wren. They've given us a grant that we've used for microphones, web costs, and such, and we're very grateful. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions and to Tim McNinch for our music this week. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. How are you using this podcast? What are you finding helpful? What would you change? You can interact with us on our Facebook page or send an email to firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. 
Until next time, then, I'm Rosie Candipal. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.